Well, I want to begin our time this morning by asking you two questions, and they are two questions that have to do with God and our understanding of Him as well as our own lives. And if you would, if you're a note taker, I'd love for you to write the answers to these questions on your notes because it will help you as we go along this morning. If you're not a note taker, I won't try to turn you into one, but at least answer them in your head because it will help you as we go along. Look up here on the screen. Here's the first question, and that is, does God ever forsake those who are His? Don't yell out the answer. Just answer it in your head or on paper. Does God ever forsake those who are His? And before you answer too quickly, by forsake, I mean hide his face from, turn his back on, distance himself from. In other words, does he ever remove his actual presence from those who are his? And by his, I mean followers of Christ. Does he ever forsake, even for a season, those who are his? Yes or no? Now, the second question is similar but subtly different. And here it is. Look up here on the screen. Can a person feel legitimately forsaken by God? Can they feel legitimately forsaken? And again, I want you to think about your answer here. If you answered yes to the first question, then obviously the second one is going to be easy for you. The answer will also be yes. But if you answered no to the first one, can a person, however, feel legitimately forsaken? And by legitimately, I mean understandably so. That given the circumstances that somebody might find themselves in, in a fallen world that's not our home, can somebody feel forsaken by God to the point that you and I would look at their lives and say, well, yeah, of course they would feel that way given what they went through. Is that a possible and legitimate experience? Now, I want you to hold on to the answers to these two questions. We're going to flesh them out as we go along this morning. We're down to the short strokes in a series of messages we've done all summer here at our church called The Questions That Jesus Asked. And today, i got to tell you folks, we come to one of the most honest and soul-stripping questions that a person can ask in a fallen world that things are not the way God originally intended them to be. It was a question that was asked by Jesus himself when he asked on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And obviously, unlike many, if not most, of the questions we've looked at in this series, one of the first things we need to notice about this question is it is not one directed toward us. It was asked of God the Father, and as many of you know, it was asked by Jesus when he hung on the cross, dying on a cross for the sins of humankind. And yet, what some of you might not know is that this question, recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verse 46, was simply a verbatim repeat of a question asked by King David some 1,000 years before that in Psalm 22. And so the reason I tell you that is because for our purposes this morning, we're not going to focus on Jesus' usage of this question, even though we're bouncing off the fact that he asked it. And the reason is simple. Because his usage of this question is vastly different than how David used it. And I would submit to you that it's vastly different from how you and I would use this question today. In other words, when Jesus asked this question of God some 2,000 years ago, God literally had turned his back on Jesus. He had turned his back on the sins that Jesus was bearing on the cross for you and me, the sins that he carried as a sacrifice for our sins, only obviously appropriated for those who believe and trust in him. In other words, you and I could never ask this question, 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the same way Jesus asked it, simply because we're not dying on a cross for humankind, and God is not literally turning his back on us, as we shall see. And yet it is still a common question that you and I ask. It was certainly a question that David asked, and David was just as human as you and I. And so we're going to bounce back into the Old Testament this morning, look at Psalm 22, and understand this question from David's human-like but very God-focused perspective as he originally asked this question that Jesus also asked. Now, Psalm 22, if you brought a Bible, open up there right now. Psalm 22 is a very interesting and powerful psalm. And what is most interesting about Psalm 22 is that it is a unique mixture of David's own experience as well, get this, God using David's experience to give future prophecy of what would happen when Jesus entered the world. And so you got to read Psalm 22 from a perspective of David's own life, as well as, however, what the New Testament would do, and that's use David's life to predict what would happen in Jesus. So, for instance, in verse 1, it says, My God, my God, David says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, a prophecy of what Jesus would eventually ask. Then as you read further, and we'll get to in a few minutes, you get to verses 14 to 17, and you find phrases like this. David says, I'm poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint, they have pierced my hands and feet, I can count all my bones. I mean, these are talking about the crucifixion of Christ. The New Testament writers would bounce off these phrases and say, see, it was a prediction of when Christ came. But David's also using his experience there. And then in verse 18, a very famous phrase, he says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots, which is what the soldiers did with Jesus when he was on the cross. In other words, don't miss this, folks. This is important for us moving on here this morning. This psalm contains a few key prophecies that New Testament authors like Matthew, John, and Paul would use to show the predictions or show that the Old Testament predicted the sufferings of Christ. And yet these were also prophecies, however, given in and through David's own experiences most likely the experiences that he had before he was king when he was chased by King Saul. In other words, these are experiences that David had in his life during a very difficult time in which he's pouring out his heart to God. And so it's from David's perspective that I want us to read this psalm this morning, but also understanding that it is a prophetic psalm, and you never should uh, misunderstand that aspect as well. Three things. Three things this psalm reveals to us about this whole experience of feeling forsaken by God. And the first thing is this. And that is, though, at times we feel forsaken by God, in reality, we are not. Man, this is so important that you and I latch onto this this morning right from the get-go, get -go, no matter where you are in your life right now, that though there will be times that we feel forsaken by God, in reality, you are not. And this gives a clear answer to question number one that we asked earlier. Uh, let me show you this. Look at verse 1 of Psalm 22. It begins like this. David says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And obviously David is feeling very forsaken and abandoned by God here. And what you need to know, folks, is that David felt this way often in his life. And on more than one occasion, he cried out to God in this way, simply denoting that he felt very alone and even ditched by God. 
In fact, check this out. On no less than nine other times in the Psalms, if you were to read them, does David utter a similar cry and prayer to God about feeling forsaken and even abandoned by him. Using phrases like this, he says, How long will you forget me? Do not hide your face from me. Why do you forget my affliction? Why do you reject my soul? As we're going to see in a few minutes here, folks, that the feelings of feeling forsaken by God can be pretty normative in a fallen world. And David felt it often. Big, tough, burly, courageous David, a man of all mans, felt forsaken by God. And as we're going to see, was not shy to declare it. And yet before we get to that, however, what we first must see is that though this experience of feeling forsaken can be very real to us in the moment, the genuine reality is that God has not gone anywhere, however, and that he has not changed his position toward us in the least. In other words, he has not forsaken us. And before we attempt to work through the feelings of feeling forsaken, we need to first recognize God's position and character from the start. And what you need to know is that this is exactly what David did. That all through the psalm, we have evidence that his mindset was that though he felt forsaken, he was still honoring the fact that indeed he was not forsaken by God. Now look at verse 24. As he wraps up the psalm, and you'll see what I mean, and we're going to compare it to verse 1. In 20, verse 24, David says this. He says, For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried, him, cried to him. Interesting. Though David authentically felt alone and abandoned in verse 1 by God, he does go on to admit, however, in verse 24 here, the true spiritual and relational reality of it all, and that is that God has not gone anywhere, that he's not changed his position or disposition toward him in the least. He hasn't turned his face away from him or turned his back on him. In other words, David was recognizing that God was there all the time. And the point is clear for you and I. We need to do the same today. You and I need to live in the stead of our spiritual forefathers and mothers and likewise recognize that though at times we're going to feel abandoned by God, we'll see what to do with this in a minute, we need to begin the whole process by remembering that indeed he has not forsaken us. That's what men and women of faith do. You know, this is such a key truth in the Bible that it's actually all over the place. And in the New Testament, this idea that God has not forsaken you, even in your most difficult times, is repeated like a scratched CD. Look at Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, some of Jesus' last words. He says, and I am with you, here it is, always, even to the end of the age. Which means like the end of time and history as we know it. Then Paul, in one of his most dark times in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, says this. He says, we're afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair. Here it is. Persecuted but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. And then in a general promise given universally to all believers in Christ, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, says this. It says, for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Uh, folks, listen. Uh, we're going to see in just a moment what to do with these feelings and experiences that we have at times of being forsaken by God. 
But before we enter into that tunnel of chaos and learn what to do with those feelings, we need to enter it with some knowledge and trust, even if it's in the back of our mind, like I think it was with David, that God has not changed his position, attitude, or action to you at all, that he is still with you. And I would submit to you that that presence makes all the difference. When I was pastoring in Canada about 10 years ago, there was a family in Toronto that was going through an extremely difficult time with one of their little boys, and they decided to do an email chain about it as well as have a website about it. And uh, it was a unique situation. It was the Burrell family. He was a choir leader, a church choir leader at his church, and uh, a good godly man. And uh, their five-year-old son, James, got neuroblastoma, which is a very rare form of childhood cancer that almost many times is uh, going to be fatal. And sure enough, about three years later, James passed away and went on to be with the Lord in, in heaven. But during those three years, uh, Sid and Pam, their parents decided that they would let many of us who wanted to journey with them through prayer and encouragement in on it. And though I never met this couple, for three years I followed their email and website uh, trail, praying for them and, and tracking them almost on a daily basis. And one of the most beautiful things about James in his life is that he coined a phrase early on as a five-year-old. Can you imagine? He coined a phrase with his parents. He said, you know, Dad, you can't let cancer ruin your day. You can't let cancer ruin your day. I mean, I just don't know of too many five-year-olds that say that. And, and, and during those three years, they really made life as best they could an adventure for James. He wanted to grow up someday and be a train conductor, and so they made sure he got plenty of train rides during that time. They had a cabin in the woods as a family, like some of you do, and they went there often for times of retreat. He was really into the Lord of the Rings trilogy that was just coming out at that time, and so they made sure he got special previews of that. Even Tom Hanks came and visited this young man once when he was in there, this young boy when he was in the hospital. And again, their church really surrounded them during this time. But as I mentioned, it would eventually be a losing battle, and when James was about eight, he was getting to the near end of his fight, and the emails became so much more authentic and raw during that time. It's actually been put into a book uh, that's called uh, You Can't Let Cancer Ruin Your Day, the James Emails by Sid Burrell. But I want to read you a portion uh, of just the emails that Sid put out in the last days. You, you, they're kind of rough, but you, you'll see where I'm going with this in a minute. I think it's profound. December 10th, 2001, Sid says, Yesterday, James stopped holding us. Now his hand reaches out, not for our hands, which he pushes patiently impatiently aside, but to tightly grasp the metal bars of the hospital bed. Physical touch has become uncomfortable for him. Pam and I struggle to comprehend a role where as parents it seems that we can no longer comfort our child. Then three days later, on December 14th, he says, So here we are at last, the final stretch, two, maybe three days. This morning was rough. James awoke in much pain, rejecting all of our efforts to comfort him. I can't stand it when you put your hand on my head, he says. We administered this pain med and that one, adding a warm beanbag here and another one there. And he begins to calm down and asks us to read to him. More Bible stories, please, he says. And then he sleeps. The rest of us just slip out of the room and have a big cry in the kitchen. The next day, December 15, 2001, he says, The pain is sort of under control, thanks to high doses of Dilaudid, but the drug, or maybe the disease, leaves James unable to find rest, and it's clearly exhausting him. Any attempt to hold his hand or stroke his head or any physical contact is prompt, promptly rejected. 
By lunchtime today, even the offer of reading a book to him is turned down. The most exotic Lego set would not even be given a glance. The long-expected double vision problem arrived today, so TV or video is not an option. A challenge for us caregivers as we sit helplessly beside his bed. He says the awful thought is that the next logical step will be that he don't even, won't even want us to sit quietly by his bedside. The fact that today is the Burrell Christmas, the family is due to arrive shortly, and there's going to be gifts waiting under the tree to be opened, and it's meaningless. But for the sake of the other children, we move ahead with our special dinner and the opening of presents. Then three days later, on December 18, 2001, I woke up at 6 a.m. that morning. I'll never forget it. And uh, Sid had written one very short email, 3.11 a.m. that day. It contained just three words. He said, James just died. Sid. And I got to tell you, I don't cry very often, but I just sat there in my computer terminal, and I wept. And I wept because of how sad the situation was. At that time, I had kids about the same age myself, and we all know we can relate to that. And I thought, my word, if this was one of my kids. I I was just so overcome with sadness. And yet as I thought about it more, I was also overcome with a a sense of peace and joy that I think you can only have when you know the Savior. A A peace and joy that Sid and Pam shared because they knew where James was and is. He's with the Lord. But a sadness nonetheless. And as the days and weeks and months followed, a thought hit me that I want to share with you here today. Now now try to tune into this because I think it's so relevant for you and I with God. A thought hit me, which was this. And that's that when I read the rawness and roughness of these final emails, how James felt so alone in those final days, just a little eight-year-old boy, the thought hit me, I wonder what it would have been like, however, if his parents weren't there. I I mean, in those final days, he he didn't really feel much at the presence of his parents because he was in pain. He was confused, as any eight-year-old boy would be. But I thought, you know, there's kids in Darfur who die without parents, kids in Somalia, even kids here in the States. And I thought to myself, I I wonder what James's experience would have been if his parents hadn't been there. And I thought, you know, in my mind, it would have gone from profoundly sad to tragic, from a sad thing to an awful thing without the presence of his parents. And then it got me thinking even this, and this is the question I want you to wrestle with this morning. And that is that when you look at a situation like this, folks, which is worse, being in pain and struggle with no human presence at all, or being in pain and struggle with a presence that though it doesn't take away the pain and though it doesn't even feel all that good, is there nevertheless? Which would you choose in that situation? And I think we all know the answer. Of course, we would choose to have a presence with us like that. Any of us would. That's just normal. And if you can latch on to that at all this morning, that's what God is saying to you and me in Psalm 22 here. That's what David is affirming when it came to his pain. That though he was in pain, God's presence was with him still. Even at times it didn't take away the pain. Even at times David didn't feel the presence. That's the number one complaint I get from many of you. When you're going through difficult times, you say, where is God? And I say, he's with you. You say, but I don't feel him. And you know what the answer is to that, folks? He is still with you. 
That's what faith is. Faith grabs onto his presence. It clings to it. It says, I know you are here. I know you haven't forsaken me against my feelings, even at times against my better judgment. That's exactly what David was doing there. And I would submit to you, without that presence, it would be like a little boy dying of neuroblastoma without his parents at his bedside. None of us would wish for that. And God says, none of you have to go through your times without my presence. But you got to believe that. And you have to cling to his presence by faith. That's why he's given you faith. That's the first thing we learn from Psalm 22. When we cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He hasn't. He is still with you. Now, I know the rebuttal to this. And that is that if you and I are having a cup of coffee and I run this by you, you'd say, well, Jamie, that's all good and fine. I can do that. But guess what? I still feel forsaken. I still have my feelings. What do I do with those? And I'm glad you asked. I have an answer. It's point two on your outline here this morning. And it's this. And we learn this right from David. And that is you don't ignore or deny your perceptions. But get this. You honor them by bringing them to God. That's what you do with them. Especially men, I want you to tune in right now because women find this easier than men. What you do is you don't deny your perceptions or feelings, but you give honor to them because they're real and you bring them to God. And when you look closely at Psalm 22, you find that this is exactly what David did. In fact, it takes up almost the whole of the psalm. David brings his complaint and frustration to God, even as we're going to see here in just a second, asserts some bargaining power even in the midst of his complaint. And so look up here on the screen. I want you to notice what he goes on to say. Look at verses 2 to 5. He says, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them to you. They cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Pause right there. Impeccable logic David is using here, right? He's saying, God, you are holy and you are good, and our forefathers, my forefathers, trusted you, and you delivered them. They cried out to you, and you rescued them. They trusted you, and they were not put to shame. The implication being that, hey, God, I'm doing that right now, so how about a little deliverance? I'm doing that right now, and I still feel forsaken by you. Then look at verses 6 through 8, 12 through 13, 16 to 17, and 20 to 22. I'm going to string this together for time's sake. David says, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. For dogs encompass me. A company of evil doers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. <laughs> Don't miss, folks. David is essentially saying here, evil people are doing bad things to me, God, and good people are watching like the brothers. You hate this as much as I do, so it would be a good thing for you to deliver and stop forsaking me. That's what David's saying here. 
And then if you're not convinced, this is classic. Look at verses 9 through 11. You and I do this all the time. David says, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. In other words, David is saying, You and I go way back, God. We've known each other for a real long time. And I was raised in a Christian family all these years, and I've stayed pretty close to you. So don't you think you owe me just a little bit of deliverance here? I mean, he's bargaining with God. He's saying faithfulness is faithfulness. You call yourself faithful. Where are you now? I'm feeling forsaken by you. And yet I don't know where you are. Don't miss this pattern, folks. For 20-plus verses, David lays it out before God, filling in the gaps on all that he's feeling and thinking about his circumstances and even God's role in his circumstances. He didn't deny or ignore the perception of his soul that he felt forsaken, and he didn't also ever claim that God's not in the picture, ever present and fully facing him. He affirms that at the end of the psalm. But what he does do is bring his perceptions and feelings to God. Why? Because he knew that in God's presence they could be handled most effectively. He knew that God was good and that God loved him and that God could handle the feelings and the thoughts and the perceptions that he was experiencing as a fallen human being feeling forsaken by God. And the point is, is that you and I need to learn to do the same. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7 is one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. It says, casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. That's what God wants from you and I, to cast all your anxiety on him. And maybe look at it this way. He knows what you're feeling anyways, and so why wouldn't you bring it to him? I mean, sometimes I talk to men especially, and they say, well, I... I, I, I don't know if I want to bring that to God. I mean, you know, I just, I, it's just not right that I feel that way. Well, I'll grant you that. I mean, it's probably a skewed feeling that you're having when you think that God has forsaken you when he really hasn't. But it's a feeling. And you have it. And it's a thought. And you have it. And if you think you're kidding God by not getting it out, you're crazy. Because he knows that you have it. And he's commanded us in the New Testament and modeled here in the Old Testament to get it out, to bring it before him, to lay our case before him. And all I know, folks, is that when you learn to do this, it does something powerful in your soul in which you go from anxiety and discouragement and even depression to having a weight lifted off you when you learn to get it out before God. And again, because I find many women tend to be more natural than this at men, I think especially men, we need to learn to do this. Men tend to function only on two levels when it comes to their feelings. You ever notice this? Good and bad. You know, how's it going? How are you doing today? Good. How are you doing today? Bad. You want any detail? No. I mean, you know, just we need to go beyond that, men. We need to be able to get our stuff out before God, then maybe lean to do it with our spouses and, and those around us because it does something cathartic for the soul as David models for us here. I was about 23 years old when I first learned to do this. You'd think I would have learned it up to that point, but I, I didn't. And I, I had been a Christian just a couple of years. I was in seminary uh, studying for the ministry, and it was on one of the darkest years of my life. I, I mean, I can remember that year. It was 1986 like it was yesterday. And uh, it was the only year that I had been a Christian 
for the last 30 in which I didn't really serve God at all. I kind of pulled myself off the playing field onto the sidelines, and I just didn't serve God that year. I was in so much pain. And the reason why I was in pain is for another sermon, but just suffice it to say, it was one of the darker years of my life, and I was really wrestling with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, and definitely feeling that by the Lord. And I'll never forget one night, it was pent up, it was burning so much in me that I decided to go out with what I would, after that, call a regular thing. I would call them prayer walks. I just wanted to go out, and I, had, I was so pent up, I had to walk as I prayed. And it was one of those very windy Chicago evenings in the fall of 1986, and at the seminary I was studying at, there was a college right next door, Trinity College, and it had a big football field. And the football field was empty and dark that night, and very windy tonight, and I started at the one-yard line, and against the wind, I just took about 15 minutes walking across this football field, screaming out to God. I wasn't yelling at him. I was screaming to him, very Psalm 22-like. I was getting my complaint out before him, and as I walked across this football field, about 15, 20 minutes into the wind, just having it out with God, I got to the end zone at the other end, and I kid you not, all of a sudden the wind died down. Now, some people call that a coincidence, but I like what a guy said to me years ago. He said, the definition of a coincidence is that when God performs a miracle and prefers to remain anonymous, and I think that was pretty of God there, but not only did the wind die down by the time I got to the end zone, but for the first time in my life, my soul started to die down. It was an uncanny experience for me. I mean, it sounds so simple to some of you. You're like, duh, Jamie, I do this every day, but that was a first for me. I, I, 20 minutes of prayer, I I got it all out before God, at least all that I knew. And I got to that end zone. And for the first time in my Christian experience, I had a level of peace that I never thought possible. And I remember sitting there in that cold Chicago night thinking to myself, I got to do this more often. I got to get this out before God a lot more often. And now it's a regular habit, almost daily for those of you who know me. There are times where I'm walking around my neighborhood at night talking to myself. That's what my neighbors think. There's a crazy pastor. I'm not. I'm talking to God. And I'm talking to God mainly about you guys and all the things that are driving me nuts and the things that are weighing on me. And ah, you know, and, and I'm so tightly wound. And I mean, I'm just, but I'm getting it out. And, and I find that when I do that on a regular basis, again, men tune into this. Man, does it help my soul. It just helps to get it out. I now do that with other men, as I've told you. I have a small group of men that I surround myself with that I do that. I do that regularly with my wife, Kim. I mean, I don't whine to everybody around me, but I, I do make a habit uh, to, to, to honor what I'm feeling and bring it to God. So where have we come from today? We enter into the tunnel of chaos, feeling forsaken. And as we enter that tunnel, the first thing we do is check ourselves and say, but I'm not forsaken. You've got to kick your faith in right there. And then as you go through the tunnel... Allow yourself to feel what you feel and bring that to God. It will do great benefit to your soul. And then there's a third thing, one final thing that David teaches us here that's so critical. And that is that while you're in that tunnel, cling to the promise that in the end, God is going to come through. you got to kick your faith and cling to the promise that in the end, God will come through. Uh, look with me, very interestingly, how Psalm 22 wraps up. David says in verses 24 and 26, he says, For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. Now verse 26, interesting. He says, The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Fascinating. David ends the psalm 
with resolve, he ends the psalm by basically saying, I've tasted and seen that God is good. I will now praise him, and my heart, your heart, should live forever. Now tune into this. I know we're getting down to the short strokes here. One of the things that we have no idea about in Psalm 22 is what David was really struggling with. We have no clue. All we know is that it's one big whine psalm. I mean, he's just whining up a blue streak about something that he's going through, but we don't know what. As I said earlier, it was most likely written during a time that he was in pain before he was a king, running from King Saul. So maybe he was betrayed by a good friend. Maybe he was hiding out fearfully in a cave. Maybe he was worried about the future. We, we don't know what it is. We just know that he's struggling deeply. But because we don't know what he's struggling with, get this, we also don't know what he means when he says, I have eaten and now I'm satisfied. The average Christian will assume that what he means by that is that God delivered him. That what that means is, is that God pulled a fast one, changed his circumstances, and now he's no longer in trouble. But it doesn't always mean that. In other words, there are other times in which David didn't have his circumstances changed, but he also realized that God was good and gave him peace, and he praised him as well. Remember when his son died, his son with Bathsheba, and David prayed that the son would live, and he was in sackcloth and ashes, and he was crying out before the Lord to save his son, and God decided not to do that. His son died, and what did David do? He got up and he praised God because he knew his son was with the Lord, and he knew it was time to move on. You see, there are times that God did not change David's circumstances, but David nevertheless knew that God had and would come through just in a different way. That's instructive for you and I. At the risk of simplicity or oversimplification, I find that there are at least three ways that the Bible teaches us that God will come through in your life. Ready for these? Give me all three clicks here, Virgil. Three ways. First way is that God will at times change your circumstances. In other words, when you cling to the promise that he will come through, he will, what the Bible calls, he will deliver you. He will change your circumstances. That's all over the Bible. But there's other times, as you and I know, that God is not going to change our circumstances. You know what he's going to choose to do? He's going to give you a deep sense of his presence that will bring peace. Is that not so cool? There are times in, in your life when he is not going to take you out of the circumstances you're in, but he's going to give you peace instead. So I got to tell you, when I walked from the one-yard line up into the end zone that windy night in Chicago, when I got to the end zone, guess what? None of my circumstances were changed. All the things that I was struggling with were still there. Not one of them was different. I was still the same person, and all my circumstances were still the same. But I was different inside because God had given me peace. God had come through that night by giving me his presence in the sense of peace. But get this, there's also times where he won't change your circumstances, and he won't even give you peace in the immediacy. You know what he will give you? He'll give you a persevering spirit. You read the New Testament all over the place. It talks about the fact that when the going gets tough, Christians get going, and part of the way we get going is that we tie a knot at the end of our rope. We hang on for dear life. We trust God, and the Bible calls it perseverance. And there are times where what God is going to gift you with, what he's going to give you, how he's going to come through, is he's going to give you a persevering spirit to hang on in the midst of your difficulty. But make no mistake, no matter what he does, he is always good, and he always comes through. And so the question I have for you as we go to the communion table today is simply this. That the next time you feel forsaken by God, what are you going to do? Some of you are there right now. Some of you came in here today feeling very forsaken by God. And so this question is glaring at you right in the face. What are you going to do? 
I would encourage you to realize that he hasn't forsaken you. I would encourage you to bring all of who you are to him. He can take it. And I would encourage you to cling to the promise that he is still good and that he's going he's gonna to come through for you in whatever way he chooses. We're going to have some prayer counselors down here, some of our Stevens ministers after the service today. Just like first service, we had people come down to receive prayer. If you'd like to come down to have somebody hear your story and pray for you, please, by all means, do that today. We're here for you. We're going to go to the communion table now. Why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I thank you that time and time again, the words that you've given us, the Bible, bring us back to nowhere but the realm of faith, to nowhere but the realm where you ask us to bend the knee before you, open our arms wide, and trust you, even in the most difficult of circumstances. Lord, we thank you for the story of Sierra that we started our time with here today, in which she so clearly shows us as a young 25-year-old woman of God that she has trusted you, she's tasted you, and seen that you are good, even against all the odds. And so, Lord, i got to believe that there are those of us here who can resonate with that. And my prayer is, Lord, that we would never doubt the fact that you are present with us, that we claim that by faith, that we bring all of who we are to you, and that we would cling tenaciously to the promise that you give us, that whether it's your presence or peace or a persevering spirit or deliverance, you're going to come through in some way. Move in our lives, we pray. Meet us at this table, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the servers are going to hand out to you uh, some unleavened bread and uh, some juice, uh, very similar to Jesus' last meal before his crucifixion, his arrest, and his resurrection. We'd ask you to hold these elements, and we're all going to partake together.
years ago when I first moved here, I was at a uh, Christian outreach event in which a uh, celebrity was speaking about his faith in Jesus, and it was a great talk. At the end of it, he gave people an invitation to receive Christ. And so he said to people that if you want to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he will become your God, he will be good to you, he will develop in you a strong character, he will be your leader, and so anybody who wants to receive Christ can do so now. On the drive home from that, I asked my then 14-year-old son, I said, you know, that was a a good talk and all that, but did you notice anything missing, Uh, especially toward the end? My son, without blinking, I'm so proud of him, he said, yeah, the guy didn't mention anything about sin. And I said, yeah, he didn't, did he? How can you talk about the gospel? How can you talk about what Jesus did for us without talking about sin? Jesus did come to give us life and give us life to the full. But before any of that can happen, please know, folks, what he came to do was forgive us our sin. Every one of us have fallen short. Every one of us know that deep inside ourselves. And Jesus came 2,000 years ago so that you and I might be forgiven of the sin that keeps us from God. And so I don't know about you, but I I deal with my own sin every day, my own struggles. And every day I fall on the throne of grace. And I thank God that he gave Jesus. I thank him that because of what Jesus did for me, my prayers are now heard. I am forgiven as we just sung about. I'm clean, I'm pure. Even if I'm still struggling in my practical life to live up to that positionally, he sees me as his son and so different. I mean, it's an amazing truth, the gospel of Jesus. And that's what these elements are all about, that Jesus gave his body, his blood, for our sin so that we might be brought to him and have a relationship, an eternal relationship with God the Father. So let's celebrate that. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Eat in remembrance of me. the same way he took the cup that they were drinking he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness the remission of your sins and whenever you drink remember me God my humble prayer as we close this service today is that in the coming days weeks months and years we would never forget we would always remember the core of our faith the fact that Christ came and died for us who are sinners in need of grace We thank you for the amazing grace he has shown. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. We'll see you all next week.